The Lifestylist, episode 88, featuring Nate Martinez. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, beautiful people, for bringing your ears back to the Lifestylist podcast. I was so excited to finally, after over a year of doing the show, finally deliver unto you an episode about sound and music that I decided to bust out the old acoustic guitar and play this here track. It's probably running underneath my voice as I speak at this very moment, if Dustin, my sound editor, figured out a way to put it in there. I forget sometimes that music has played such a crucial role in my own life. I mean, I think in episode one, Return of the Jedi, way back when, I talked about how when I first heard Jimi Hendrix, it was like the first spiritual experience I had. I must have been seven, eight years old or something. And I sometimes forget, because I don't really play music professionally anymore, that that was a huge part of my life and my own self-expression. You know, that's what I really found as my first true creative outlet and then you know lo and behold here I am talking for a living a lot of the time which is interesting and not doing a lot of playing at least for other people however every once in a while I bust out the guitar even though actually I'm a bass player so don't shoot me if my guitar playing is not the best I'm definitely no Jimi Hendrix but I have fun with it but every once in a while I bust it out on the show and then I'll get an email or a comment on Instagram like hey dude play guitar more and I'd like to do that but honestly I'm always so focused on putting together a great sound episode using the voice uh, of my own voice and that of the guest that I kind of forget about the music part. So today was a good reminder because Nate Martinez is such a fantastic musician that he kind of inspired me to really remember how important sound and music is. And maybe I can start incorporating a bit more of that into the show. I just kind of have to figure out, you know, where and how it fits, but I'd love to be able to play a little guitar here and there, you know, at least I'll force people to have to listen, even though I'm not going to go out and do gigs and play in a band anymore. Just kidding. Kind of, not really. But anyway, enough about me. This is all about our guest, Nate Martinez, and how he has awakened the um, influence of sound and music within me. He's part of my New York City sort of tour of uh, guests that I recorded out there. I found Nate, or rather he found me, and I ended up going to one of his sound baths out there at a place called Sky Ting Yoga in Chinatown, and I was just blown away by his performance. I mean, he took me to a place of transcendence and just total trippiness in the best sense of the word. I don't know what instruments he was using exactly. I tried not to peek. I just went with it. But dude has got some magic mojo going when it comes to creating sound that has an effect on you. And that's really what this episode was about. So more so than two musicians kind of shooting the shit about their favorite albums and instruments and all that, we really talked about 
the science and the deeper meaning of music and sound and how it affects you. So some of the topics we covered in this episode are as follows. The fact that he played with one of my heroes, Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead, on the album Blue Mountain and what that experience was like. So I had like a fan moment and geeked out on that for quite a few minutes. And I was pretty excited that he played with someone on that level and was very curious about what that was like. And then we get into the differences between sound baths, sound meditations, and musical performances and concerts. So there's different purposes that we use sound in music, and we explore that at depth. How sound impacts every moment of our lives and how we're often manipulated or influenced by it. How to deal with New York City street noise and to avoid the stress and the negative impact it has on your biology. Turns out there's a lot of different sound, not just music, but we're constantly surrounded by sound and they all affect us differently. It's really interesting stuff. And then how sound influences and can shift our brain waves and assist in achieving meditative states using things like binaural beats. Some of you might be familiar, some of you not. Listen up, it's really cool stuff. And then why we are drawn to sound and music and how it plays such an important role in our lives even before we're born. Ah, yeah, it's not only when you pop out and get those headphones on, you get affected by the music mama was listening to when you were inside the womb. Really trippy stuff. The concept of brain entrainment as it relates to sound. And then the mystery and possible conspiracy of A440 tuning. Now, if you're not a musician, you don't know what the hell that means. If you are, you know what's up. Tuning up, tuning down. Turns out that there's a a lot of different opinions on how we actually ended up with this particular tone of music in secular pop music or in Western culture's music. It's, It's really, really... Uh, quite fascinating. How our subconscious memories of music influence our current moods and emotions, and how we can incorporate sound therapy techniques to gain a better understanding of our environment and to help distinguish unhealthy sound from healthy sound and how to avoid the sounds that actually have a negative impact on us. And then finally, finding more and more ways to use sound as a tool for mindfulness, meditation, and maybe even enlightenment. So put on your seatbelts and get ready to join me and Nate Martinez as we travel into all things sound and music. This show is brought to you by my friends over at Clearlight Saunas. And I want to give you the opportunity here to save a considerable amount of cash if you're interested in purchasing an infrared sauna. If you go to healwithheat.com and enter the code LUKE, you're going to save $450 as well as receive free shipping and a free ergonomic backrest to use in the sauna. So you can go to healwithheat.com, use the code Luke, or just give them a call. They're super cool people. It's a family-run business. You can call them at 800-317-5070. Now, why do I use an infrared sauna? Okay, let me just get into that. I use it for weight loss and increased metabolism. So basically, I'm losing weight burning calories from just sitting on my ass in the sauna. This is, you know, scientifically verifiable. And I know it sounds too good to be true, but it's not. Uh, Muscle pain relief, immune system boosting, massive detoxification, improves the appearance of my skin, eases joint pain and stiffness, and it's just really good for stress and fatigue reduction. When you chill in an infrared sauna after about five minutes, what happens is you go into a parasympathetic nervous system state, which means you are cold chilling. 
So it's just really good for relaxation. Now, if you want to learn more about saunas in general, I'm going to suggest that you go back to my episode number 24 because the whole damn episode is about infrared saunas, okay? So again, if this is something you're looking into, I think they're the best in the market. They've got indoor and outdoor models starting at $24.95. They're very reasonable, really high quality. And again, if you use the code Luke, you're going to save 450 bucks off your purchase, free shipping, and a free gift by going to healwithheat.com or giving them a ring at 800-317-5070. It's time for a shout out to my friends over at Organifi.com. Everyone knows that green juice is good for you now, right? You see it like in 7-Eleven. There's green juice everywhere. I love my green juice, but there's a couple problems with it. One, it usually comes in plastic, which is less than ideal. Two, it's loaded with sugar. A lot of these green juices that you think are healthy have like 25 grams of sugar. That's like a green Coca-Cola. Not good. But mainly the issue with the green juice phenomenon, for me personally, is that they're not very portable. Even if it comes in glass and it doesn't have sugar, I have to drink the whole thing at once if I'm in my car or I'm traveling or something like that. So they're just not quite convenient all of the time. And they'll just go bad if you leave them sitting there. So what Organifi has done is created this amazing superfood green juice blend that comes in a powdered form in a little packet that you can just throw in a bottle of water, any other drink, and make an instant super powerful green juice. So it's got 11 superfoods. It doesn't have any of the swag extra stuff that you don't need. It's just the stuff that you're actually going to feel. So it's got turmeric, chlorella, wheatgrass, spirulina, mint, moringa, ashwagandha, lemon, beets, little matcha green tea for an extra kick there, some coconut water for electrolytes and potassium. And then it's sweetened with monk fruit, which is awesome because it doesn't spike your blood sugar. It's got like a low glycemic index, unlike some of those green juices I mentioned. So it's a really great product. I've been using it for months. You've probably heard me talk about it before. I want to share an opportunity with you to save 20% if you want to check it out. All you have to do is go to Organifi.com and enter the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout, and you're going to save 20%. So that's Organifi.com with an I, not a Y. Use the code LIFESTYLIST and save 20%. Check it out. You will not be disappointed. Nate Martinez is a certified sound therapy practitioner and accomplished professional musician and producer based in New York City. He has studied shamanism and intuitive healing and has earned his sound therapy certification from New York's Open Center. As a musician, he has performed and recorded with Bob Weir, Alexi Murdoch, The National, and the American composer Michael Gordon, amongst many others. Martinez leads sound baths and meditations for individuals, groups, and companies, and regularly teaches and facilitates sound baths at Mindful, Sky Ting, Brooklyn Yoga Club, and Brooklyn Zen Center. Martinez's work in sound meditation and sound therapy has been integral in growing an awareness of the field, and he's been featured in Vogue, Elle, Prevention, New York Magazine, The Huffington Post, Well and Good, Yahoo Health, Mind Body Green, and many others. Welcome to the show, Nate. Thank you. It's good to see you again. Yeah. So, listeners, I went to uh, Nate's sound bath at a yoga studio called Sky Ting the mm -hmm. other night, the one in Chinatown, and uh, got super zened out. And I'm like, I got to talk to this guy. We ended up having a good chat after your session about all things music. I think you might be the first musician that I've interviewed. 
please don't be offended if you're one that I've interviewed and you're listening to this <laughs> and you weren't impactful enough for me to remember. But we had like a good bro musician talk because I used to we play did. in bands and yeah. still play music just, you know, at home for fun. So, um, yeah, so really good to meet you and hang out with you. I look forward to digging into a chat here. Yeah, me too. Thank you. We've for got three me. audiences, one listening to this future podcast, and then we've got Facebook Live and Instagram Live going, of course. And uh, it's almost a shame that we're recording audio and we don't have some instruments to like kick around. Next time you come to LA, we should have like a jam session slash podcast recording. I'm in. All right, cool. So you're a musician and a sound healer. And so you work with sound to impact people's consciousness. Yeah. Would you say that that's a good description yeah. of what you do? Because a lot of people are learning about the field and what people do as facilitators. I'm a certified sound therapy practitioner. Whether it's sound healing or sound therapy, it's important because I think people have this idea that sound healing means that a healer's doing something. <laughs> okay, right, right, right. And I tend to look at it f that I'm there to help create space, but if anything's happening to anybody, you're doing it to yourself. Totally. I, yeah. I understand that distinction very yeah. well. It's sort of like even when you go to a healer, they're more in the context of physically healing someone that has a, an illness or something like that, it's like a good one won't even view themselves as they're the ones doing it. They're sort of, Just you know, a, a witness. Yeah, they're a witness or yeah. a facilitator that's allowing the body to do what it does. It's like you don't even heal yourself, really. It's more like you. the way I look at it is like you stop doing the things that made your body sick and start doing things that facilitate your body's healing and your bodily's own innate intelligence almost heals itself, right? Right, yeah. Rather than someone like doing it to you per se. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction too because I think people do have this idea that somebody's going to do something to you. Right, I right. mean like I'm, I'm in the room with instruments and things yeah. are happening, but I mean I'm getting out of the way. Yeah, I, I'm I'm just like really into the whole sound bath, sound experience thing. It's something I got turned on to from doing kundalini yoga. Yeah, with the and gong. So, yeah, so there's always a gong and then there'll be certain um, classes where it's like more specifically geared around the sound and people bring in their, I don't even know what they have because I lay down and close my eyes. And it's like you have one of these things too. It's like some weird shaker thing that sounds like water. I'm literally like, did somebody just bring in a fountain? You know, yeah, but I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to like rob myself of the experience and open my eyes and demystify it. Yeah. But I I love the sensation. I mean, maybe it's like the musician in me, but I love the sensation of not knowing really what direction sound is coming from and not yeah. knowing the instrument from which that sound is originating. Just like having a totally blank experience perfect that's what it's all about yeah which is which is neat so anyway yeah. we're gonna dig more into that but yeah first i just want to geek out on like the musician to musician vibe because of course i'm you know i'm looking at your bio and researching you for the interview and stuff like that and i saw that you'd played with a couple of musicians that i like one is the national which is a great band that you yeah. played with and then the one that really got me and like i was telling you before the interview was sort of delayed reaction like i signed your bio oh he's played with bob weir and i was like yeah yeah whatever and i just glossed over and then today before the interview i was like this guy played with bob weir of the fucking grateful <laughs> dead it just like suddenly hit me in the head and i was like oh my god we gotta do an interview about that you know and it brought me back to my time, you know, I guess it was like in the early 90s and the few, maybe five years before Jerry Garcia died. And I wouldn't consider myself a deadhead where like I can tell you like the Sugar Magnolia from like 79 at Winterland is better. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know deadheads that are like deadheads legit yeah. that traveled the world following them. I sort of followed them for a few years basically around the West. So I do like 
Northern California, Southern California, Las Vegas, Arizona. That was kind of like the leg of the tour that I would catch and went to quite a few shows and took copious amounts of LSD. But then when Jerry died, I sort of lost touch with that scene. I saw Rat Dog and a couple other iterations of, you know, that Bob Weir and some of the guys were involved with. But I haven't been like someone who's followed Bob Weir's solo trip at all. But what an amazing opportunity. So I'm curious just how that came to be and, you know, what you played and what you played on and what that experience was like. Well, this album that he released last year is an album called Blue Mountain. And it's considered his second solo album in his whole career. The other one being Ace, I think, in 1974. And Interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah. Because so Jerry did a ton of solo work. Jerry Garcia Band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, and, and Bob had other... He had Rat Dog, and um, he's been playing all along. But one of my best friends, this guy Josh Kaufman, who we met a long time ago, as soon as we got to college, we were both studying music, has long loved The Grateful Dead and ended up playing with him and, and a few of our other friends in the National for this charity thing. And then they struck up like a friendship, and Josh just had mentioned this concept for this album. And... Of course, people for many years have pitched him different ideas, like he has the opportunity to either explore it or not. And um, so they started exploring what this album could be, and it and it was going really well and very fluid, and Bob was really inspired by it. And so they wrote these songs with uh, another friend of ours, this guy Josh Ritter, and, and um, when it came time to start recording, um, Josh was producing it. And he would bring these different groups of musicians who are a bunch of our friends and extended community. And we would, you know, everybody, these various groups would get together at different studios and just play on some songs. So I got looped in and played on, I think ultimately, maybe like four or five tracks. And we had um, Josh's wife, Annie, and her friends. They have this um, female vocal group. And they came and recorded the background vocals at my studio. Oh, no way. Cool. And so... Yeah, it was like for Josh, it was he was, you know, bringing his his whole community in to support this idea in a really beautiful way, and um, it was it was fantastic. The songs are amazing, right? And and I think that um, it was really. Do you have enough? It's on Spotify. It is. It is. Okay, I'm yeah. going to get it. I'm going to get yeah, it. Yeah, check it out. So I love Spotify. Like anytime someone mentions an album or an artist, I'm like, drink, drink, got it. Yeah. You know, it's like amazing. Can you imagine like. I don't know how old you are, but I'm 46. So, you know, when I wanted music when I was a kid, you had to like physically go to a record store, buy the vinyl. If they know. had it. Yeah, if they had or you had yeah. to special order it if it was something obscure. And it's just, it's amazing to think about. You just get used to that sort of immediacy. The labor now, involved. Yeah, it's like I can literally yeah. be on my phone talking to someone and, you know, waiting for a cab and be like, oh, that band, cool, look it up, got it. And Save, I'm listening done. to an album. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. I know it is. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's available. And, and the thing about the concept is that it's like a, it's an album of cowboy songs and it harkens back to Bob's experience of being like running away at like 15 or being sent away for like a summer camp. But it wasn't summer camp. He was hanging out on a cattle ranch in Wyoming in the middle of nowhere. And so it was it was one of these things that like has has a lot of meaning to him about his whole journey. Right. Right. So it was cool. Awesome. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So what an amazing opportunity to be able to play with 
an artist like that and have that to your credit, right? I mean, that's like a huge resume point. Like, boing. Yeah. Something that's interesting to me about Bob Weir, and this is just, I don't know, we'll just meander where the interview goes, but I've always really been fascinated by his guitar style. Yeah. It's like when I would watch The Dead or, you know, like I was ever like front row and could really see, but I'm thinking more from videos. You can never really make out like what instrument's doing what. There was like Jerry, you know when Jerry's doing something, but Mm -hmm. he played very little rhythm guitar. You know, it was like he just had his like weird style of like lead guitar for the most part right and then bobby's like over there making all these motions but you can't like hear a solid chord like the song might be an e but you never hear bob Weir like play just a big like open e standard chord he always says some weird inversion some weird rhythm it's like i can never tell what the hell he's playing in other words there's no way i could sit down with a dead record and like play along to bob weir's guitar part yeah it's just totally bizarre. He's an amazing musician, and, and I think it speaks to his... I think he was heavily inspired by McCoy Tyner, um, who was the piano player with John Coltrane for many years. Ah, uh, okay. McCoy particularly has like was all about these cluster chords and really, you know, like working with the rhythm, and I think that was something that, as like an accompanist something that Bob really tapped into. And I, that's what I like really, it is hard to hear, but I think that speaks <laughs> yeah. to the level of musicianship of being like totally supporting whatever is required in that moment. Right. You know? Yeah. So, it's also, but it is like, it's not identifiable in the way that someone it's, like, it's, um, it, it brings to mind like a style of playing that has a lot of humility in it. Yeah. You know, which is which is inherent to a lot of jazz. I mean, you have Charlie Parker like, ah, you're like, whoa, okay, that dude's the one I'm supposed to be listening to. Yeah. But it's the supporting musicians that really contribute to the whole of a song, the whole of a performance. And yeah. they're not at all trying to stand out. They're actually just trying to embed themselves in that sonic scape, right? Yep. Yeah. And that is exceedingly difficult to do if you're a musician, uh, I find, and have just observing playing with a lot of musicians because... You want to like show your stuff. You know what I mean? It's like that fine line of like, when is your part, your time to shine and when is your time to just lay back in the cut and really be supportive? So it's an interesting way to contextualize that. And you said the magic word, the formula is jazz. I go, oh yeah, duh. Yeah. That's, he's playing, he's playing jazz, even though it's technically like, I guess you could say a rock band in the dead's case, you know? Yeah. Right. Which is a little bit like, that's the thing is that with jazz, you associate it as, um, with technically proficient virtuoso musicians who are doing, you know, amazing things. And it feels like, obviously, there is a focal point with whomever is interpreting the melody. And But it is one of those things that just because you can do it, it doesn't, that there is like a supportive role that the, if you listen to like Elvin Jones, he's, I suppose, if you want to say soloing the same way that John Coltrane is, like, he is. Right. Um, but the focal point is on the saxophone because of the just the nature of like the timbre of the instrument. Right. Exactly. But yeah. Because it's, but it's it the is, one that jumps out kind of above the rest of the instruments just because of the tonality of it. Yeah. I mean, even if everything's like absolutely flatlined in a mix, you're still going to hear that more than you're going to hear the upright bass or something, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Or like Charles Mingus, for example, like there's this virtuoso crazy bass playing going on, but it's like if you didn't know that it was Charles Mingus in a big band setting or whatever it was, like you just be like, oh, cool, this is nice. Yeah. We wouldn't be like, well, listen to the bass. Right. You yeah. Know? But if you isolate the bass, you'd be like, what the fuck? This guy is from Mars. Yeah. That's the thing about frequency range of what we're capable of listening to. That's kind of like 
I suppose that's kind of our segue into talking about That's perfect. Oh, look at how that just unfolds like yes. a nice Persian rug getting rolled out. Yes. There we go. So we all have limitations with what we're hearing within the frequency range. And we're either typically predisposed to focusing on one aspect over another. So for some people, if it's vocal music, it's obviously like more intently listening to the words. Um, and then the potentially the melody comes second because it's like the words have the most impact to that individual resonate the most. And if we're talking about Charles Mingus, for example, it's like there's no way you're not really ultimately being consumed by the horns because they're just so present. And they're also a slightly higher frequency. You know, bass players always get their amazing musicians and are never <laughs> noticed. Well, that's but again, it speaks to I, the idea I, of support. I chose bass I, when I played in bands, which was about fifteen years. And listeners, you've never heard of any of them. Don't worry about it. I like played with guys that you've heard of, but never like my thing that you've heard of. Doesn't matter. But I chose bass for two reasons: because it was the fastest way to get in a band in Hollywood in nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, because no one wants to play bass. Everyone wants to be in a hair band and like play lead guitar and get laid. And also, I could just hang back with the drummer, and I was very like self conscious at that time in my life, and self-conscious about my ability to play music and just being up in front of people on a stage. I'd never performed in my life, you know? So I liked bass because I could just like really hide, not only physically on stage, but actually hide my sound too. You're sort of just creating this bedrock and you're not the one that's out there. So if I made a mistake or something, it's like only a musician in the room would notice. Everyone else would just be like, oh, something feels weird. Right, but, but on the flip side of that, you're you're an integral part of that whole support. right. Which is funny, right? Yeah. When we think about how we're maybe insecure about something, but you know, at the, if you actually look at it on, on paper from a different lens, it's like you're actually as concerned as you were. You were holding it down. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, right? if you watch a band and like, there's a part where the bass drops out intentionally. I mean, it's really noticeable. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, depending on the type of music, but I mean, let's just say like rock music, the bass player can't just go fucking smoke a cigarette. No. no. And that's the other thing that I always found like difficult about it too is that you have to keep playing for the entire set whereas like the guitar yeah. player might literally like just drop out for a minute and you know the rhythm guitar player is kind of taking over a part and there's this like sort of like in the case of the stones like you look at those two guitars they sort of have this weave thing mm -hmm. going on you're not really sure who's doing what and then keith can kind of like play an incomplete part and then the other guy Ron Wood will finish it, and it's very lazy. And meanwhile, the bass player and the drummer are like working their ass off. They have to keep playing, yeah. and they can't drop out. Yeah. So yeah, it's funny. You know, with like how we listen to things, like the frequency range. I think something that really interests me is the idea of how receptive we are. And I think about it mostly just because I'm just my life is filled with sound, and that's kind of the gonna be the lens that I always look at the whole world through in one way or another. Um, but just being receptive and thinking about just the concept of listening and, you know, listening to me is like beyond just orally, like what we're hearing and taking in because it's also a physical thing. Cause we're talking about vibrations and we're not talking about like the woo woo vibra. We're literally talking about analog waves that bounce around rooms that we take in through our bodies. We're also hearing these and, that's just, it's information, ultimately. And so when we get in the concept of listening, what we're sort of predisposed to and, and the limitations that we place upon ourselves, like think about New York City, for example. You've been here all week, right? It's loud, really loud. It's hardcore. It's really hardcore. Yeah. Way different. That than was actually one of my bullets here. That was like, before you came, I was taking some notes. I was like, we got to talk about like sound in New York City. So I'm, I'm glad you're intuited. You've so, intuited that. Yeah. So it's 
really intense. And, and when we begin to think about our environment and also just sound in general beyond the typical lenses that we look through, we look usually think when we think of sound, we think about music, which is its structured form in, in some way or another. And then we think about noise and is like noise just noise or is it actually unhealthy? So when talking about an environment like New York City, the noise level, I mean, even in the middle of the night, like I'll sleep with the windows open and you can hear this steady hum that never goes away, which is impressive. And that's something that, you know, you would call like the noise floor. The noise floor for New York City is just amazingly loud. But when we get into like car horns and then subway trains and the screeching that happens, some of this stuff actually is unhealthy for us. Yeah. And in studies they yeah. come out and they actually acknowledge that it contributes in an unhealthy way to like anxiety and stress affecting our nervous system. You have children who, you know, if they're around this environment constantly and they don't aren't able to get away from it, it impacts their learning. Mm. So there's all these l- things that we don't think about that impact us on a day-to-day plus the fact that from the time that we're literally out of the womb Let's roll it back before that. The first sense we really develop in the womb is the feeling of vibration. You know, we're feeling our mother as she speaks. You know, those vibrations aren't just sitting in the vocal cords. They're moving down through bone conduction, through the whole wow, skeletal system. dude, that's so into true. Into the womb. Any loud noise that's around or if she's standing on like a street corner and a truck goes by, the reverberation of like that sort of tire hitting a pothole is going to reverberate through the concrete up through the the feet and so we're just we're immersed in vibration in the womb and then as soon as we get out it's like hearing's on and even if you're deaf you're still receiving the vibration so it's not you're you can get a sense for what it is um and then it's on even when we sleep and it's on until we leave this world so it's, I think it's about time that we're starting to maybe realize that with all of this technology and information overload that we should maybe consider like sonic nutrition, right? Or, mm. or Ooh, I like that. Yeah. You should get that URL. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, listeners, don't fucking steal that. Give Nate a chance. Just, well, I need 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll be able to get it if it's not already taken. That's like, wow, that's a great term. But yeah, th- but that, that. Is, so we can, we can get into that in a moment but but we typically are just taking and processing and reacting and I think the thing that that people are beginning to react to in a positive way because there's a growing awareness and education around sound therapy and experiences like sound baths or sound meditations is that you can actually go and you can get sort of the you know I would when I say like sa- sonic or sound nutrition equate that to the idea of raw food for a second, right? It's like you're not get, it's not coming in a, in a packaged form, it's not coming with preservatives. It's not coming so for sound, it's not coming in a structured form in the way that music does. And because of that, we're less likely to have a judgment and it allows us to have a more expansive experience and that influences how we can alter our consciousness in a very natural way. And so when you think about music in its more structured form, and the idea of sonic nutrition, it's, I, I'm not gonna, I like pop music, but for a moment, let's just talk about looking at it from like a nutritional value. It, like it makes you feel good and brings you up and leaves you wanting more, but ultimately the question is like, you have to keep 
listening to it to retain that feeling. It's and like, so what it's is like that? the carbs of music. <laughs> Pop music you know? Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And like uh, legitimate classical maybe would be like, you know, saturated fat. It's like, you know, oh man, there's so many like directions to shoot off there. It's yeah. mind bending. And it's, I think I'm very enthusiastic because I haven't done a show on this topic, which is why I was so interested to have you on. So you have a judgment about music, right? Or about any particular sound that's structured like that. And then there's also a level of consciousness to music. So in the case of like equating pop music to being like fast burning carbs and then, you know, music that has some more like, I don't know, depth or integrity, like classical music or jazz or some music that's more rich and complex, that that would be like a more slow burning fuel. But it also has a different level of consciousness too. And the interesting thing about that is just subjectively, as I've gotten more into meditation and mindfulness and yoga and just general spirituality, I actually like don't enjoy music that I used to enjoy that's at a different frequency, not mm -hmm. not the tonality of it, but just the energy behind that music. And I've tried to go back and like have my little midlife like punk rock revisitation where I'll like go on Spotify and like look up Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys and like all the stuff I listened to mm -hmm. in high school. And I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna see like what the value was in this at that time. And I listened to it, I'm just like, I get it, but it makes me feel bad. Or even just, you know, like metal and stuff I listened to. Or not like I was I was never really into rap, but you could say the same thing for like gangster rap that's like really negatively charged and kind of like, you know, ego driven lyrics and things like that. So I pretty much like started being repelled by lower energy music and then even like music that I think is pretty healthy, like just I'm, you know, like classic rock guy, Neil Young, Beatles, Stones, just Hendrix, like Pink Floyd, all that. You know, it's just mm -hmm. my thing. It's my era and I never left the era. But even some of that, if it's like too rocking, it's just, it's like grating to my nerves. I really only like like the mid-tempo B-side tracks, you know, from like those bands, like the really rocking stuff. I'm just like, ah, like too fast, too loud, you know? And then I, I've never liked classical music, but I, I was like, well, what am I going to listen to when I work if I'm not going to sit there and crank Neil Young or something? It's like, I, I don't even know where to go. So I started listening to classical music. And I found that, and find still to this day, that it elevates my consciousness. It's like music that I don't know anything about. So I just go to the names you know, that I might recognize and just put on a playlist or something. And it has an effect on me emotionally. Mm -hmm. And it seems to have a, you know, not that, you know, not the duality that like gangster rap's bad and Beethoven's good, not from that perspective, but just different levels of energy, yeah. right? And different vibrations. So what do you think about that side of music? I think, um, well, yeah. So for what you're doing is you're, you're just, you're, you have an awareness to what sort of your sonic dietary needs are. Or you're okay, or you're right. reacting to them in a, in a way that you, when you obviously something does resonate, that you should have more of it. And it's not to say anything even about your sort of past experiences with listening to Black Flag. It's not to remove the possibility of that happening sometime in the future. It's just that what you need now isn't that type of food, right? So it's that's one way of looking at it. But I think what happens to us is psychologically is we're all guilty of it on a certain level and this kind of ties into just the idea of of our own limitations and judgments on just really anything but that because we don't it doesn't resonate with us um that somehow we should have uh and i'm not saying this is the case for you but people tend to react and have like a negative connotation towards some music 
I mean, the whole idea of listening to music is filled with these groups and artists that we adore and love and, and others that f- many of us think, I hate that. It's so easy to have like an immediate response to structured sound in music. And I've asked this myself like over a long period of time is if I'm having some reaction that is riling me up or making me feel negative about it, it's like it ultimately has nothing to do with the music. Like it actually has everything to do with me, right? And so I can spend a moment and deduce, is it just that sort of as far as my diet goes of sound, it's not what I need or is there just something else? Like what is that wall there? That's like a place that I love to explore and I would hope that maybe people would begin to explore as we begin to rethink about how we listen, you know, over the next 15 to 20 years and beyond. But one of those things I always try to correlate, and this is not science-based, but it's a something worth noting is when somebody speaks, right, they have like a particular voice and a tonality of it. Um, we've all heard when someone says, God, I find that person's voice annoying. Right, yeah. What is that, right? Hillary Clinton comes to mind for me. <laughs> so it, that that hits something in yeah, you. Yeah, totally. I don't even care what her policies are. I'm like, turn the TV off. Like, I can't stand this, you know? So I like, I think about that. That's It's like a, everybody has their versions of that. And it's like, it's like, it's, that's, it's this, it's the sound. Obviously, the power of the words that are involved in that have something to do with it. But it's like, you're having a reaction to the frequencies that are going on. Right. And just like I have a reaction to Slayer that is different than that of Kundalini mantras or something. Very, very different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and they're also, that's where you get into structured music and it's like, it's there's so many intentions and things tied up in the creation of structured music. Right. Okay. Yeah. So then, then you're getting into like layers of intentions and, and then, and then there's like, that's the thing about when you talk about the possibility of being, you know, I, I put this in quotes, healed or affected by sound. With music, it's like we all have experiences with our favorite artists and our favorite songs that have had very impactful moments in our lives. And in their own process of creating and writing that song, it's like maybe it was meant to heal them. And then there's this incidental byproduct of us having that feeling as well. Or maybe the person, maybe the artist didn't have that at all, but it has that effect. And it's kind of like an accidental byproduct of music. Right. That's the way I look at it. But the great thing about sound therapy is like it's, we're talking about raw materials and utilizing them with a specific intention. So really, there's no mistake about what's going to happen in the room. And I think that, that having that clear intention is something also that um, speaks to people when they, even if they have no idea about sound baths or sound meditations or sound therapy treatments that speaks to them yeah because (laughs) there's also other than like the instructor in your case like getting paid by the studio where you're doing the event or whatever there's actually no commerce in it because the music's not being recorded and marketed as a product and so i think i'm following you down this this rabbit hole here it's like i find something really offensive about most pop music because it feels it's it's the commerciality of it, right? It's that you're trying to fucking hammer this hook down my throat. Yeah. You know, Ariana Grande or whatever some shit that I Lady Gaga or something just like, "Oh god. This is horrendous." You know, it just like repeats the chorus over and over again and 
it's like so prefabricated sounding and it's all electronic and there's like no feeling and humanity in it that I actually like resent the sound because it's like trying to trick me into <laughs> liking it. Well, that's the the, pow the power of it, right? So it's like, and that feeling is, you're, so there's, we're getting, I mean, in this day and age, it's like pop music is, is, a, is a formula, right? And it's like tweaking, minor tweaks in this formula. But if you look at like the frequency range of it and like where the points that are hitting, it's like, it's doing the same thing. So it tends to feel um, like it's hard to determine the, the variety and, and ways that you used to think about music, you know, I'd say like particularly like pop music songs of the eighties, right? They just, and, and it's, and I don't want to deduce because those songs that Lady Gaga sings are really impactful on, on people who are open to it, which is also good. Um, but there's something that's happened with that formula that has like moved pop music into like a very small, narrow, sort of pipeline and and because of that it's like you just get it's like uh again it's like that empty carbohydrates but if you have like some of the pop songs that have stood the test of time there's just clearly there's multiple things that are different about them and i think that's like the testament to why they're still around and why people sing them i just saw tom petty the other night and yeah people couldn't oh, it was the most One amazing of the best thing concerts of my whole life tom petty hollywood bowl early 90s oh am was like, amazing i, I yeah. like tom petty and the heartbreakers like i get it but they were never like my band yeah and somebody ended up at that show and it was just i i'll never forget it, it was like ridiculously good yeah right yeah and I mean, one of the best bands in the history of rock music they're I mean, am amazing and you know and, and watching everybody sing every single song yeah well that's like, a, that's an example like you say like a, i guess you could like a um still very much pop music like very hooky music it's like not the same it's like it's been kind of been like a perfected scientific formula these days and yeah. i think that's the thing you're you're speaking to which well, yeah, is yeah it's when you walk in zara like, and you're like oh this is the like there's 500 songs with the exact same like like arrangement and the instrumentation it's yeah. like all, the same keyboard sounds the same drum sounds it's like the same sort of production quality yeah we're getting algorithmed out yeah you know what i'm saying yeah, well, yeah. you know obviously you know what i'm talking about yeah and that's the kind of i'm like god that kind of music is really hard for me to surrender to and just find the value in because it's it's like the junk food of of music kind right of, you know to me and that's the thing about how we get manipulated by sound and how often it happens and 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 how many times it happens when we don't even realize it like one, a great example um that this uh this guy Don Campbell who's who's written um the Mozart effect and healing at the speed of sound he talks about many things related to sound he's like just a powerhouse in in sound therapy world and he passed away a few years ago but uh one of the things he talks about is just like how easily ma we're manipulated when you think about like walking into a grocery store like what what is it that you're hearing on the radio usually? The answer is, I and I ask this to people from time to time, but it's like slow to mid-tempo, feeling good, because you want to move at a particular pace. You don't want to move too fast because you want to buy things off the shelves. Wow. And if you walk into like, you know, there, there, there's no, it's not just algorithms that are sort of, that are influencing the, the soundtrack at a place like Zara or any store that you're walking into, um, there's a, re there's, it, it's not, it's, there's more than just the algorithm involved right, in that. There's right. influence, there's trying to be connected to pop culture and being current and, 
And then there's just how are we going to keep people in? Or how are you going to get yeah, them out, yeah. right? Restaurants, sometimes they have like really fast, upbeat music and it's a real loud environment, especially in New York. And it's about like connecting to the New York City energy, but also like scooting you along. You right. can only take so much. Right. That's you know? interesting. Yeah. yeah. Come in, give us your credit card and get the fuck out. Yeah. Walk out and you're like, <laughs> your, your blood pressure's like kind of kicking up and so is right. your heartbeat because you've just been fighting to try and listen to your, whoever, whoever you were at dinner with. And it's like, all of these things impact us, you know? You mentioned something about how certain music uh, impacts our memory and you have memory recall. And it reminds me of, you know, the olfactory memory, how you smell a perfume and it smells like, you know, the perfume your great grandmother wore and she died when you were five, but you still remember it. And yeah. I wonder what the correlation there or the comparison is between our auditory memory, because there are certain songs throughout my life that will never, I don't think, be disassociated from the event that I remember it from. Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah. just like a song I heard when I was 10 years old, whatever it was, ACDC or something. It's like, I remember being in my bedroom, taking a bong hit <laughs> in 1982 or whatever. And it's like, anytime I hear that song, I, it takes me back to that moment. Yeah. And there are times when it's a, it's a sort of a positive experience and a positive memory, but there are also times now where it's like, Oh, it was your breakup song or, you know, a, a song that sort of conjures up, negative or sad emotion so what's your take on you know the memory of of music well you know so i don't think it's conclusive but i think that through researching alzheimer's i went through two different experiences of alzheimer's which is like a, a, a horrible end of life for really anybody who has, experiences it but through that when you're watching someone who is just kind of getting trapped in particular old memories that are really fragmented and they're popping up in really random times and and in some cases like the the individual is just living in the past or some trap somewhere in between um, one of the things that they always seem to reconnect with is music from a particular time of their life and that time is I think somewhere between the ages of like 10 and 17 which, like I said, it's like, I don't think it's conclusive, but I think there's been studies that show that a, that's, it's such an influential time of your life and we're sponges at the time. And so there's these like very strong forged connections with the sounds that we hear, particularly with the music that we hear that, you know, we'll always be able to recall back to even when our memory and all of our other sort of functions seem to be failing. Um, there's this guy, I I hope I'm saying the right last name, Dan Kennedy. He's the founder of Music for Memory. And what his organization has done over the years is he's a social worker and he's paired up with hospitals and nursing homes to get people iPods so that they can actually get playlists of their favorite songs from their youth that so that they can reconnect. And there's this beautiful moment, and this was really inspiring to me. Like it ended up being this documentary, but there was this old gentleman, Henry, who he was non-communicative in a wheelchair towards the end, end stages of Alzheimer's. And Dan put headphones on and played him like one of his favorite tracks. It might have been like Louis Armstrong. And he shot up and started singing. And you're seeing just like like that, like a huge shift. And that speaks volumes to the idea of not knowing why, but that we do have strong connections that 
just go untouched even when everything else is failing. So there's no, I mean, I, is there science? I, I don't know what that would be. We, we're still yeah. uncovering a lot so it's of like like there's neural pathways. There's, a, there's yeah, levels of, uh, of consciousness that we are unable to detect. You know, that's like these ghost memories and things like that. Like you're saying, someone could be almost brain dead to a certain degree, yet be stimulated to have a memory, even though they don't seem to have that level Cognitive of cognition. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's trippy. Yeah, yeah. And then what about how our brain waves are affected by sound? You know, there's been times where I've experimented with things like um, there was a program I was on for a while called Hemisync, where it was this hemispheric synchronization, and it would play these tones in your left and right ear and sync your brain up, and there's binaural beats and mm -hmm. things like that. Have you experimented with any of that? or? Yeah. So I kind of consider when you have like a, a a sound bath or sound meditation or treatment, one of the many things that happens is that I call it like downshifting. It's something called entrainment. Um, ah, right, right. So particularly when you get into the binaural, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but um, in our active states, like when we begin to meditate, we're like, we're slowly moving s down towards like the ideas getting to theta, right? And that it takes a little bit of work and discipline if we're going to do meditation on our own. Um, sound has a tremendous way of assisting us in that downshifting. And the idea of entrainment is that if you look at like harmony or things that resonate, if you provide two very strong frequencies, particularly we'll take the, the, like the root and the fifth, for example, just in Western music, it's like the strongest foundation, not to get too theoretical here, but everything is built on that, you know, every chord. You can remove the third, whether it's major or minor, that gives it its happier, sad feeling, and you still have this, you know, the power chord. Yeah, you guitar just described why Black Sabbath is awesome. <laughs> exactly. All because of the root and the fifth. That's when I first started playing. You, you could play like a, a rad sounding chord with two fingers, you know? Yeah. Like the, well, the root and the fifth, yeah. It's like... Like the song Paranoid. You can play that badass sounding thing with literally two fingers. Two fingers. Yeah. Root and the fifth. And if you stop the movement and just focus literally on just like a root and a fifth, just like holding those tones out, it's just the strongest set of frequencies together that you're going to get out of the whole frequency spectrum. Huh, and so when you begin to think of just having just two notes, for example, um, and you have these sort of hyperactive brainwaves, the idea of entrainment is that we're, we're influencing the brainwaves to begin to sync up and harmonize and tune into whatever's happening. Entrainment doesn't have to be with sound either. It's like there are mantras that can entrain. There are a variety of ways that you can entrain, but with sound, it's like, it's not only the root and the fifth, but I'm just using that as an example right now. When we begin to downshift and we get into that more introspective meditative state, that's when we begin to kind of connect with subconscious and then really, I mean, there's so many things that could happen when our body becomes more relaxed. Entrainment is um, when you think about binaural beats when you hear those, there's a different range of, so if you take one frequency, right, let's just say 200 hertz and you want to create a binaural sound and we won't even call it a beat right now because um, it doesn't have to be a beat but you you would ultimately you would take 
that frequency, and then you would take a frequency that's very, very close together to it. Um, so if we're like looking at theta, I think it's between 7 and 10 hertz difference. So if we take, say, for example, 200 hertz and 207 hertz, and we put them together, there's this subtle fluctuation that begins to happen, and there's a wave within the waves, right? And w what that is, is especially if, you're be if it's being introduced in a stereo setting to like your left ear and right ear and headphones, that's another way that your brainwaves are going to begin to entrain to it. And that entrainment ends up influencing how fast your brainwaves are moving or how they begin to slow down. So that's why like people, like binaural beats or binaural sounds have an impact, have like a positive impact on people because they are literally influencing what's how you're processing it. So when you have a root tone in that case and the tone that's being stacked on it is just like a couple hertz different, is that like way less than like a quarter tone or something? Way less. Like way, way, way less. Yeah, right? yeah. Because otherwise it sounds like off key. Like if you strike an A note and you also strike A sharp over it, it's like, ah, like it's horrible. For the so, Westerners here, yeah, so totally. We're, so we're talking about like a minute, minute, like almost indetectable uh It would be a in very, very, like if you think about sound waves, yeah, it's a, it's it's a slower one, but it's you'll, in some instances, you might say it uh, if you like have a, a musical or recording knowledge, you might say, oh, it sounds like it's a bit like flangy or chorusy, but it's oh, it, it's okay, not right, it's, right. It's a little bit different than that, Interesting. but but it's not noticeable to to like any average listener's right. ear. When you get a little bit further and you get into semitones, uh, like or or like as you said, quarter tones, we're getting more into, you know, we only think about, we take a, an octave and then we split it up 12 ways. That's like the Western scale. It's like 12 right. chromatic notes and out right. of that you get eight, seven diatonic notes plus the octave. When you get into other cultures like Indian music, you know, you're, there's everybody's around the world is splitting the octave in different ways. Uh, we only have... Like when you think about a sitar... Yeah, like it's so like, they're wow, like, wow, it's not like one note. Even when a note is struck, it's almost like, wow. yeah. There's microtones <laughs> right? that yeah, are happening, yeah. and so you're they're, they're splitting it. You know, it, there's cultures that split it between twenty-one and twenty-three ways instead of twelve. Right. So our ears are like really, we, we're it's like our experience is defined by those twelve notes ultimately and in that 12 notes is whether we have something like a interval that feels more dissonant or more harmonious right and right. and so when you look at other cultures um and you influ and, you know that's why it's sometimes good to in introduce in sound baths or sound meditation sounds that people aren't aware of like I, it would be a very different experience if i walked in with a piano and played something you know there's a variety of things that are going to happen. Some people might just, they may not like the piano. Right. So they're immediately out. I've lost them before I even start. Right, right. Because they have a preconceived association with the tonality or just the range of, of notes available. Right. Right. The, t the, the timbre of it. Right. You right. know, um, also it's just, it like, it might recall uh, in somebody's memory, like a particular song and then they're not present. So the thing about having instruments that are um, from a variety of cultures and also not entirely 
focused on just the way we split the 12, you know, right. that octave and 12 notes. Is, right. I think it's really good for us because we're just not accustomed to it, you know? Right. And that's one thing about dissonance that I, I think is important. And I was ta- I've talked to many people about this in the, you know, the recent past, but the idea that a facilitator should introduce dissonance um, is one of those things that from one perspective you could say, well, you're really intending to influence or manipulate the the participant in a way that should you be doing that, right? Um, and I can I, I tend to look at it like I think people can have a dissonant experience literally with a root and fifth. It's really not about ultimately not about the intervals. It's about what you're providing and how the person is responding to that, you know? Um, But guarantee that if I'm introducing some of those microtones, people could have an immediate impact in a way just because they have never heard that before, you know? I have a chicken or the egg came first question. So when we have our uh, Western scale of those 12 notes, do you think that that was predicated by the fact that an instrument like a piano was invented and then the the musical framework was sort of like wrapped around that? Or was the musical framework invented by someone, then there were instruments created which followed? Well, so the piano as we know it is not the original way that the piano was split up. So I th- there's a equal-tempered piano, which actually, it's all about ratios, how you're splitting it all up. And there are obviously different ways that you can split the octave. And if you actually go back to the formula that we arrived at was not the first formula that existed for pianos and they were, and when when they were around, but it's one that um, has been designed so that when you're actually tuning a piano, you're not tuning it perfectly. You're tuning it as an instrument so that it can be in tune with itself. So, and it's not to say that like when you play like the third octave C that it's not going to be in tune, but it's all about the temperament of the instrument itself. Um, so the chicken or the egg, it's like... The, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's well, weird. I never thought about it before just hearing you talking like, oh, that's trippy. Like which one? Well... I wonder which one came first. Dividing the octave in a variety of ways came well before the piano. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Right. Because there was before it was that there was like other instruments that were right. used that that uh, were tuned slightly differently. And it's one thing to sort of inject into the conversation too is the idea of how we listen to music and like how it's tuned. We tune everything around the world typically to A440. That's like the universal, when you have a tuner, its default setting is like A440. Yeah. And that's like the A note on the guitar. And, you know, that's something that's, really only been in our human experience for the past hundred years. Are you aware of the conspiracies about 440, that it's like this demonic what? thing that was like derived from the Illuminati and shit? You know about all that thing? Like, There's like, there's, there's varying degrees to it, whether it was like the, the German Nazis. But about a hundred years ago, it was like kind of, for all you listeners, um, historically, yeah, you better explain it. Forgive us. We're like, we might be geeking out on music talk that people are like, okay, you guys are losing me. What are you even talking about? Yeah. So before 440 kind of became the default universal tuning frequency, uh, you had various orchestras in different halls and theaters everywhere, you know, Paris, Berlin, 
every time they would travel to different places, everybody was, all the symphonies and orchestras, were, they were tuning to the space rather than tuning to a specific frequency, right? And so the idea of tuning to those spaces, they were connecting to the room and they were connecting to the natural resonances in that room. And because of that, they were able to really fine-tune the experience that was happening in each space. If they took that tuning and they went to a different hall or a different theater and they tried to tune up with that orchestra, it would invariably be different just because of the acoustics and physics of sound. So the idea with A440 is that it was like this sort of universal language that wherever you were, you could show up with an instrument that it would be tuned the same. Ah, so that was that was the purpose of it. So in actuality, there's you know people that were tu- tuning to rooms that were lower in, in frequency, more like maybe 430, 429. And to this day, most orchestras are still tuning to the room, and it's typically lower. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, That's cool. But as far as popular music and recorded music, it's kind of like it just kind of all hit 440. So right. that's that's what we've taken. It's worth considering that the idea of a, a more natural resonant frequency and having the instruments tuned to that, the question is, would we actually receive it better or kind of take in the, the nutrients in a different way versus if it was A440? So this one school of thought is people who think that 432 is actually a more resonant frequency to tune to and the basis of that is there's this thing called Schumann's resonance. Right. Which is basically it's the vibration frequency that the earth emits consistently all the time forever. About four feet from you, I have a device called an earth pulse. And it's a digital PEMF device that I use for sleep and rejuvenation. And yeah. you can tune it to the Schumann resonance and it generates a magnetic field and then the way that it works for your sleep is through brain entrainment like you were talking about. Perfect. So it entrains your brain to certain brain waves, delta, theta, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so it's the same kind of thing. <laughs> the right. thing. I bring it on the airplane and like oh, entrain like four rows of people to the Perfect. Schumann resonance because you're you're disconnected from that resonance because you're so high. Yeah. You know? So yeah, it's trippy shit. So, but I didn't know the correlation between that and sound. Yeah, right. So if you look at it from just a frequency perspective, you're just talking about vibration is the physical form of sound. Um, that so the Schumann resonance then is a sound vibration that is below the level We can't of, hear it. Okay. We can barely hear it. I don't think of it as a sound. That's interesting. It's still frequency though, right? Right, right. So any frequency then, could you think of any frequency as sound? Or well, are there frequencies there, in other dimensions that are not sound? I mean, Whether that, audible or not. They get labeled differently, right? So okay. that's something below our ability to hear. And even just because it's such a slow wave, we can't technically say we can even feel it right but the so but your it, cells feel it like yeah of the, course in the case of the pmf technology yeah so it's it's basically it's a big 7.83 hertz it and it ranges up to like 8.2 and those fluctuations where it spikes up happen around the world all the time and it's all because of electro currents and you, if there's like an electrical storm then it'll you'll get spikes in those areas in the in the earth that are having that. This sort of concept is if you take it and just average it out and say eight hertz, and you build octaves off of eight hertz, you actually arrive at four thirty two, not four forty. Wow. So, so if you begin tuning it, um, tuning instruments to that, 
you know, in- invariably they're going to sound different than 440. Right. And the question is, is, is 432 more resonant or more natural to us in, in the way that when we walk into nature and how we feel clearly different than if we were in like a city environment? Um, Do you know of any secular music that is purposefully tuned to 432 with that intention, with that purpose? I don't offhand, but I would have to say like secular music, if you think about it, they were again tuning to the space. Right. So, right. you know, you would have to actually go and measure what is going on in those spaces. Let's take a brief intermission to tell you about the upcoming launch of my brand new 90-day lifestyle design coaching program, where you can have the opportunity to work one-on-one with me. Just go to lukestory.com forward slash coaching to apply for a free 15-minute assessment call. We're going to have a quick chat to discover what your blocks are and find out how we can move you through them. Using my 20 years of experience in the fields of health and personal development, I'm going to guide you through my system of revolutionary mental, physical, and emotional transformation. This program is fully immersive. It's a deep dive into my nature-based philosophy of personal optimization. So based on your personal needs, we're going to work together to map out a blueprint for creating the happy and healthy lifestyle that you deserve, as well as a very practical approach to spirituality that you can actually carry into your relationships, your career, and your future. Here's the deal though. Space for this program is very limited. I'm not even joking. I can only take on five clients per month, period. So go to lukestory.com forward slash coaching to apply for your free 15-minute consultation with me. And now back to the interview. I remember like when grunge music came out and it's also like a lot of like thrash metal like a band like Metallica like when I would play I never played in a band as heavy as Metallica but kind of like some of that Seattle music like in the early 90s and I was in some bands and those bands would always tune down like a half step or even a whole step mm-hmm. and it's just this more dirge like sort of I don't know it's just different it just creates a different mood would and I don't know if that's for whatever on the, on the scale would that be like lower than 432 if you were tuned down like a half or a whole step it's actually uh you know off the top of my head if it's correct it's actually that would be more extreme than like if you're taking like a whole step is more than than the the eight okay that's what i thought because that like music that's tuned down like that inherently has kind of a more depressing feel to it it also gets into the psychology of of like how we, li- you know, everybody says like, oh, seize the people's key because it's easy to play on a piano. You just run up the white notes, right? And the thing about it is there's many, many pop songs that are written in the key of C. It doesn't have too much of a low end because you, you can only get so low. If you think about right. stringed instruments, which is the, more, you know, pretty much I mean, if you want to include the piano along with the guitars and basses as like the foundation of like all, rec- you know, popular music. Yeah. excluding jazz for a moment just because we're talking about mass um you know we've just kind of carved out this range of how we hear and accept things in the same way that if you look at just like if you kind of mapped out the frequency range and where the focal points are for like current pop music you'd look at it be in a very like focused space but when you begin to like detune it's just a little bit different, but enough so that we have a different reaction. Like Jimi Hendrix always used to tune to E flat. Really? Yeah. And I oh, mean, wow. I, you know, and there's, I mean, over time artists have tuned their instruments lower 
but they're still in 440 for the most part. There is this one thing that I don't know if it's official, but um, John Lennon, for example, right? He wrote that song, Imagine, which who doesn't know that song? It's amazing. There's this like idea that he tuned it to 528 hertz because 528 hertz is the is the frequency of love. And that's like a beautiful story, right? Wow. I don't know if it's the truth, but to me, I think when people start getting into specific frequencies, doing specific things, it gets a little bit gray for me. I, I think if we had, when you look into the extensive field of like sound healing and sound therapy and getting from like more extreme, one might say like woo-woo or a little bit more grounded, um, there are conversations about 528 hertz or this this frequency is for focus and all of these things. But to me, I think that if we had would have actually figured that out, wouldn't there's enough positive good people in the world? Wouldn't we have like cannons made with 528 hertz and just pumping them out in the world? And we'd have a very different world if that was actually true. So it's something that I think is yeah, interesting. Like, send love bombs over the Middle East. Like, Serious, like <laughs> just throw that frequency bomb. out and like yeah, yeah. everywhere. And yeah. you know who cares what productivity is? Like we have a happier world, right? right, right. But it's too easy, I think, in our Western mind, particularly because this is where most of the, these like concepts are sort of generated in. Another one I'll talk about in a moment, just from like the sound therapy perspective, but. It's like it's we we need to like reduce to be able to digest or to 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 feel like we have the complete information and knowledge of it so that and it's like most things are just gray and unknown. Another one is which I I love the concept of 528 hertz and being love. It's ju- I just we, we need to get a little practical about some of this stuff too. Um the other is I often talk to people who might be in the extended field and field and and crystal bowls are very popular for good reason they're made of quartz most of them are you know mostly quartz unless it's some other gemstone Um, the power of quartz is that it amplifies that is a fact i mean it's in every piece of technology it has impacted us in ways that we can move beyond just the woo-woo gemstone i have this crystal because it makes me feel good um they just are integrated into our lives for a particular reason uh, because of their power. Um, But oftentimes I hear people saying, oh, does that bowl relate to your third chakra or your seventh chakra? And, you know, at the same time, it's applying the diatonic seven notes to your seven chakras, C, D, E, F, G, A, B. And then you get up to the eighth and it's the octave. And to me, I think, oh, it's just too easy. I I would love to believe that, but it's just a little bit more complicated than that, you know? And when we really think about it, it's like people, let's just remove the idea whether you believe in a chakra or not. Info's still out on that. But if anything, there's a number of frequencies and it's not determined what's going to have an impact on you. It really is about where are you in your life? What do you need? And what is available that might help you. And so that's really, I think, when we get into the space of holding space for others and just being facilitators of sound, it's important that um, we remove ourselves. It's not about me. It's not about ego. It's not about me wanting to play a, a melody. It's about 
removing, becoming a, like a vessel in, in, in the best sense of just being present, not bringing my own story into this. And just so people can have a positive impact and not be influenced or influenced the least way possible by the facilitator. Because if I'm bringing my stuff in, then that's not helpful to you. Well, you know? yeah, you're maybe you're maybe influencing in a way that subtracts from the experience, right? You know, by like inserting your will into the equation, right? Yeah. Rather than just sort of surrendering and letting the natural experience unfold. Yeah, I want to ask you as we're because we're getting a little bit close to to the end here, and there's sure. definitely something I want to cover because I feel like we like sometimes these like conversations slash interviews I feel selfish because I'm I'm literally just talking to you about the shit that I would talk to you about if there were no mics and no cameras and sometimes I'm like oh, I hope there's someone in the audience that you know like gets where we're going when we go into some of the more esoteric stuff or just you know musically technical but I definitely want people to leave this um, episode with some knowledge about sound therapy and sound baths so that in the event they live somewhere where maybe there isn't one in every yoga studio like there seems to be in Manhattan or LA, what one could look for, A, and then if you could describe some of the instrumentation. So you t for someone that hasn't been in one and they don't know yeah. what the hell we're talking about, you mentioned the crystal bowls and uh, in the sound baths that I've been in, there's oftentimes a gong and uh, there's weird little rain like i said i never opened my eyes so i really don't know what's going on i know there's a gong in the room and i identify that sound i know the ringing tones of the bowls mm -hmm. but then there's all kinds of weird percussive instruments like the ones that sound like a rainstorm which are like some little goat uh toenails filled with sand or something you know it's yeah. like so what are some of the instruments and kind of what's involved in the process of you as a musician or practitioner of setting all that stuff up and where do you get the stuff? Like how, you know, what's the deal with sound bass from that perspective? So it's typically a variety of instruments. It could be uh, crystal quartz bowls. It could be Himalayan singing bowls, which are these metal bowls typically made with five different metals that are also sung in like crystal bowls and, and struck. Every sound is made up of uh, the harmonic series um, and what gets amplified in that harmonic series is what the timbre of the instrument is. So like singing, crystal singing bowls are great. They're like mostly, they're not a sine wave, but they're pretty, like their fundamental tone is very strong and you might have subtle overtones. Himalayan singing bowls have like a more broad amount of harmonic overtones that are, that you can tap into or follow. Um, other instruments are like you mentioned, like I have, there's this Indonesian rattle that just sounds like water. It's amazing. Um, I have a shruti box. People use harmonium shruti boxes. Those are Indian instruments that are bellowed, so they have wind and reeds, very drone-like. Um, right, where that'll just hold like yeah, kind of thing. I peeked the other day during your sound bath because yeah. I was like, "How is he doing all that?" There, did he sneak another guy in here, yeah. <laughs> like a second musician? And then you had like one hand on that thing yeah. and then you're doing doing you know hitting some other yeah. balls or something i was like oh that's cool so that's like a drone instrument drone there's a lot a variety of drone instruments that are really good for sound bass um, i do overtone singing as well which is basically what i was talking about with um, particularly like himalayan singing bowls and really any instrument with your voice you can whether you want to like people might know it as like two throat singers um that's one way of listening to overtone singing, but it's about amplifying particular overtones in the spectrum with 
your voice so you can actually sing multiple notes at once. So I do that as well. And that's something that I think is kind of speaks to the idea that typically we're trying to bring in instruments and sounds that you don't have too much of a relationship with so that you're not going to be passing judgment or tuning it out, shutting it off. And in addition to that, just having like a lot of rich harmonic overtones is always, and a range of those is really good. That's something that I think speaks to a lot of people about the gong. It has like full spectrum, you know, everything from low to high. You can pull so much out of just that one piece of metal. Dude, gongs are bananas. Yeah. That, that, That is like such a weird instrument. I think especially because... I mean, in the in the context of a sound bath, it might be incorporated into sort of the set, I guess you could say, at different junctures. Mm-hmm. But usually, um, I've experienced it like at the end of a Kundalini yoga class, yeah. where you're using breath, and I mean, you're calling in all these trippy energies and stuff, and then it's like, cool, you have what's called the lie out, you know, and then they bust out the gong, and it's just like, what is happening? Yeah, it is so weird, and because you can't think about the gong, that's trippy is. You can't, unless you, you know, obviously you saw it earlier in class, like, oh, the gong's over there next to the teacher and the sheepskin or whatever. But when it start, when it starts going and you're laying there, you have no idea what direction it's coming from. Yeah. It's like omnidirectional sound, the way that it reverberates in the room. And then it seems to sort of, like you said, it has so many, such a depth of um, tonal possibilities that it like resonates, the, it feels like it's resonating and vibrating the water in your body you know on so many different levels and it's like it's like your brain is vibrating to it yeah it's just the it's the craziest phenomenon because when i first started experiencing i was like oh geez here they go like we're gonna bang on the the fucking dinner time yeah you know i was just like i don't get it but then once i you know sort of had that experience of like wow this is changing something yeah and it sort of like reminds me of that i don't know if you're familiar with um dr amodo's work the he, he wrote a book called the hidden messages in water. water yeah yeah right and so i started to just lay there and space out to the gong and be like wow so my cells are 99 percent water my body and brain are between you know 70 and 80 percent water and so imagine what those different frequencies of the gong are like literally doing to me on a cellular level. No wonder I feel different. Well, for your listeners, if you want to actually see how sound affects us on a cellular level, just Google cymatics. Hans Jenny was this natural physician who uh, studied at Rudolf Steiner's school you know, way back in the, in the 60s. He started exploring how rec- and recording how frequency affects matter. Right, So his whole thing, he coined the term cymatics, which is like the study of wave phenomena. And if you look at, um, there's many YouTube videos that you can check out, but if you pump particular frequencies, or really any, some are going to, if you put sand on like a plate. Oh, dude, I've seen They used that. to be called Clodney plates back in the 1800s. I think it was Alexander Clodney. Actually, was the first time that I th- he may have like put some sand on a plate and and did like a violin bow on it or something, and it kind of organized. Dude, that so, is the you guys listening. We'll put it this in the show notes. We'll make a couple YouTube links, but that is the trippiest shit ever. It's some alien shit. Yeah, <laughs> straight up. So but, carry on. So that's the that's a, a another great way of um, of tying it in. Of like, if this is happening to matter you know, sand, whatever. It's like, and you're consistently pumping the same, if you pump a frequency and then you, and it creates this sort of organized geometry shape, like they're all different and they're amazing. 
and you move the frequency, it will change into something else. And then you move it back, it's like you're getting the same result every time. So it's so it's kind crazy. of like the oversimplified way of looking at it is that if that is matter, then this frequency is also having an impact on us on a cellular level. So yeah, check out cymatics. Yeah, and yeah. that's and that's a good a good note to uh, to wrap up on because this is such trippy stuff. Yeah, could like start with that and go for another three hours. We're gonna have to do a part two when I come back in September, I think. Cool. But that also makes the correlation in my mind to Dr. Emoto's work. And those of you listening, what we're referring to is the hidden messages of water. What he would do is he would like flash freeze water into ice crystals and he would um, he would imprint the water with like a positive affirmation, like write it on the beaker that the water's in and then freeze it. And the word would be love or F you or whatever. And then also did it with music. So he'd play like, you know, heavy metal versus, versus classical. Bach. Yeah. 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 And, and you'd get like the crystals would come out, um, you know, like brown and all just, they look all like not symmetrical and just really ugly. Distorted. Yeah. Distorted yeah. for things that had quote unquote, like negative energy or lower energy. And then if you said the word love or played classical music or something that was a little harmonious more crystal yeah, you have world. Like these, these like ornate snowflakes, you know, they're just amazing. But yeah. it's it's sort of it reminds I never made the correlation. It reminds me of those sand experiments that you're referring to where they play a certain tone and they organize into this weird geometric shape. And that is like to me, both of those examples are it's just some alien shit. Like there's so much more going on than we're right. aware of and that we could probably ever understand rationally yeah it's just some, it's some trippy stuff well that's why it ties into some people with um you know synesthesia or just the the impact of certain sounds at certain moments how some people have memories of that like color might be introduced into it and we'll geek out more but you know if you think about light the range of waves you know if you're just like ultimately just cranking it up a spectrum it's like you're moving from low energy higher then we're getting into ultrasound where there's a lot of really interesting stuff. Like they're like successfully having matter that hovers just by the, the pumping of ultrasound frequent waves. And they successfully did it last summer. It's like they had this like ball, three different pipes that were shooting ultrasound waves and they were it, like, this thing was just hovering on its own. No way. Yeah. And then you you're just, getting up into light. You just explained how flying saucers, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> for the layman's terms, it's move like move through space and like shoot out at right angles and stuff. Yeah. I've been like geeking out on like the alien flying saucer stuff lately. It's pretty incredible. Well, I think sound had something to do with it. Yeah, yeah. cool, man. Yeah. Well, listen. Okay, so in closing, my final question is: yeah. uh, You've taught me so much about sound today. You've taught our listeners so much about sound and music, all this crazy stuff we've been discussing. What or who have been three profound teachers that you followed that you might recommend to us? Could be a book, a philosophy, a theory, a person, anything. Good question. There's many. Um, in my journey to get here today, um, it wasn't all about sound. And in the uncovering of just a lot of doors and saying yes and exploring a lot of things while I was in my own personal dark forest, figuring out what... I was meant to be doing and where I was meant to be going. Um, a friend recommended um, Spiritual Unfoldment. Um, it's by White Eagle, and there's a series of four books. And it's a really, it's really a, an amazing way of looking at the world um, in a more spiritual way, but not in the structure of a, a normal religion. So I would say that that definitely had an impact at a moment for me. 
there's a plenty of amazing pioneers in sound therapy. A couple that I can just rattle off is uh, John Bellew is one who he's just uh, just this genius and has such a rich amount of knowledge about life well beyond just sound. Sylvia Nakash is another one, um, and she's equally amazing and specializes in voice. Wendy Young uh, was our program director at the program that I was in some years ago, and she's started a new program through the International Sound Therapies Association. It's quite extensive, um, and she's just amazing. Um, so in the sound therapy field, I would say like those three names um, I hold with high regard. Right. Um, Great. And we'll stop there because maybe we'll have another conversation that's in cool. the future and no, there'll be more cool. recommendations. And we'll, uh, those of you listening, of course, as you know, we'll put those in the show notes. And if you want the show notes sent to your inbox so you don't have to try and write anything down right now, as always, I recommend you go to lukestory.com, find something on the homepage that says join the evolution, enter your name and email, and I will send you everything that Nate talked about today for free whenever I have a new show. So um, in closing, along with those show notes, where can people find you? Any website, social media where they can come find out more of your work? And if they're in New York or wherever you happen to travel to, like actually come experience what you do. Yeah. Um, so my website is uh, www dot ntmsound.com um you can find a lot of information on that website uh i teach regularly at a variety of places in new york uh including mindful uh sky ting brooklyn zen center brooklyn yoga club um i'm doing multiple classes a week now in new york and am starting to sort of pop around to some different cities um, which throughout the fall I'll be doing more of that, even coming to LA actually. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Let me know, man. I'll get some heads out there. I will. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just go there, check out everything. Um, there's going to be, I'm um, actually soon enough. I've been s- helping others create and produce sound meditation recordings. And I've kind of been a little hesitant, but I've, I, I think I've got some in the works of so people actually are, uh, not around New York City that they might actually be able to connect with some sound meditations that might help them as well from a distance perfect Um, yeah awesome man well thanks so much for joining me it's been good to hang out with you and I really enjoyed experiencing what you do so I hope our audience has a chance to do the same thank you thank you and you be well Nate you too man And so it is the end of another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. Do you guys have any idea how lucky I am to sit down with people like Nate on a regular basis and have these fantastic conversations? I swear to God, I must have like rescued a lot of babies in my past life or something. I have really good karma to be able to do this. Like when I listen back to these things after the recording, I go, God, like these people are so rad. And I get to not only sit down and chat with them and ask them anything I want, but I get to record it and then put it together and pass it along to people like you. So it's just really neat to be able to celebrate such talented and amazing people. 
and uh, to and to draw other listeners to them. You know, now some of you will probably end up going to one of Nate's sound baths or experiencing what he has to offer the world in some way. Now that you've um, you've heard him on my show, so very very cool stuff. And speaking of cool stuff, dude, check this out. As the third person that I interviewed in New York uh, is my guest next week, and so on number eighty nine that comes out Tuesday. My guest is a woman named Abby Galvin, who's been practicing something called Katona Yoga for over 25 years. I stumbled across her class, went in, took the class, and was just like, what the F is this? It was so hardcore, so badass. She was so badass that just immediately right after the class ended, I was like, I just took your class. I don't know who exactly you are, but you got something going on that the world needs to know about. And she's like, yeah, cool. Let's do a show. So I went over there um, uh, later on and recorded with her. And she's just, I mean, what a fountain of wisdom Abby is. Just really, really amazing lady. It was one of the most uh, special interviews I've ever done. And uh, so I can't wait to share that with you next week. Here's the deal, though. If you don't subscribe to the show then you probably forget to listen to it. So click subscribe so that next week, Abby Galvin's interview magically appears on your device or on your computer, okay? Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting the show and all the stuff that I'm doing and for giving me the opportunity to cruise around the world and talk to fantastic people and for me to keep learning and expanding my level of awareness and consciousness in the process. So thanks for taking the journey with me and I'll be back at you next Tuesday. 